There we go. Okay, so um, we're looking at God is light. We're looking at part B. And just to give you a heads up, there's a part C and a part D. Okay. I'm like, come on, we're talking about God is light. All right. So John, First uh, John 1, 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Okay. So John begins this declaration of God's character as he begins to address our fellowship with God because our understanding this about the Father in that He is light and in Him is no darkness, that is critical for our understanding about Him if we desire to have fellowship with Him. Okay? That is essential for our understanding. That is essential. So on your on your study guide from first John one five till first John two twenty eight, this issue between God who is light and the darkness is your blank that is of the world is addressed by this apostle in reference to our fellowship with God who is light. So darkness is that first blank. So at the very outset of this epistle, John is drawing the line between the two. For there cannot be any fellowship with God if darkness is present. That's your blank. There cannot be any fellowship with God if darkness is present. And conversely, the darkness can never fellowship with God who is light. Okay? The two will never come into agreement. The two will never fellowship. And we see this quite plainly in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. Because that's the very issue. The light versus darkness in our fellowship with the Father. Um, you know, if you say you have fellowship with God and you're walking in darkness, that doesn't compute. That's a lie. John wrote in his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 5, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So on your study guide, this darkness, which we will look at in some detail, cannot comprehend. That's your blank. It can't lay hold of the mind, or for that matter, the heart, uh, with the heart, that, that the light that God is, because it loves what? What does darkness love? Darkness. That's what it loves. John 3.19 And this is the condemnation that light is coming into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, least his deeds should be reproved. So the, the darkness hates light. It hates light. That's why there's no fellowship between light and darkness. So on your study guide, it is this love for darkness that prevents those in this darkness from being in fellowship with God. Psalms 94.20 says, So shall the throne of iniquity have uh, fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law. So that's a question. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with you, God? No, it will not. It will not. Now, who sits upon this throne of iniquity? Is, what's, is there a difference between darkness and descent? Or are they synonymous together? Well, when I get into darkness, I'll, I'll talk about it then. Yeah. 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 If we have an understanding of darkness, then we will kind of understand what that's all about. And I'm going to get into that in some detail. But that's a good question. That is a good question. So who sits on the throne of iniquity? The prince of darkness, right? The prince of darkness, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, according to Ephesians 2, uh, verses 2 through 3. He's the one who frameth mischief by law, right? It is, it is this wisdom that cometh not from above that James talks about. It is um, the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness that the Christian has to put his armor on. To, to, to war against in Ephesians 6.12. He's the one who is on this throne of iniquity. So on your study guide, in a spiritually practical 
application for believers, there is also a throne that we set up in our own hearts. Right? Uh, One that we are not really willing to yield to anyone, including the Lord. And that's our problem. That's our problem. See, so many of God's people claim Jesus as their Savior, but when it comes to claiming Jesus as their Lord, they balk at that. They wrestle with that. They have a hard time with that. Hey, I'm there. I'm there too. I'm there too. There's times when the Lord will exercise His Lordship in my life, and I am not ready to yield to that Lordship. Because it means something. It means I have to die to self in some matter. And let me tell you something. That flesh does not want to die. It just does not want to die. So on your study guide, this is a hard saying for many believers. And that there cannot be any fellowship with God if darkness is present. But it is a vital truth that must be believed and comprehended by those who desire to know the joy of fellowship. Comprehended is the word. In fact, we're going to look at this when we get into 1 John uh, chapter 1, 6 through 10. And it even goes on into chapter 2. Because that's the very issue that we wrestle with. We wrestle with that issue. And if a, if a believer is um, walking in darkness and he's claiming that he's in fellowship with God, that's a contradiction. That's a, in fact, John is so bold and so strong, he comes out and calls it a lie. That's how, that's how strong it is. And I, I believe it is possible, especially with this watered-down understanding about fellowship today and about God today, I think it's possible that we can be in fellowship with other believers and be out of fellowship with God. Because it could be that the believers that were in fellowship, they may also be out of fellowship with God. Alright? That's possibility. Now let me, again, I'm going to say this time and time again. We're not talking about salvation, folks. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about our relationship with God. We're not talking about salvation. What we're talking about is the blessing of our salvation. And that we can have fellowship with God and, and, Sometimes we're kind of like Esau. We sell our our blessings so cheap. We sell our blessings so cheap. So on your study guide, John emphatically declares that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Complete is the word. Complete absence of darkness and the absolute total presence of light. So complete and absolute. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Variableness. What is that? That's the, uh, the quality of changing from one condition to another. Like from light to dark, sunny to gloomy, hot to cold. God, there is no variableness in God. God is always pure light. He's always light. Okay? Absolute light. That's the character of God. God is constant. He's not like you and me. Up one day and down the next. You know, I feel like I'm holy today, but tomorrow I'm going to be unholy. He's not that way. He's constant. He's always holy. He's always light. You see, the Gnostic, the modern Gnostic, will, will, will present God uh, being willing to set aside His holiness. Alright, set aside His holiness, set aside His purity, set aside His light in order to adapt to and relate to His unruly and unholy people. They'll tell you that. They'll tell you that. He is willing to walk in the darkness with you, is what they, what they tell you. That's a lie. That's a lie. So on your study guide, it is not God that must change. It is God's people who must change. 
in order to know the joy of uh, the fellowship with the Father. It is not God that must be conformed into the image of man, nor is God subject to the will of man, as your word of faith teachers will tell you that he is. Okay? But rather, man's need of being transformed is your blank, in their minds, and conformed is the other blank in their character and personality in the image of Jesus Christ. It's not God that must change, folks. It's you and me. What was the second one? Transformed and... Conformed. Okay. Transformed and conformed. So on your study guide, if we desire to know of this fellowship with God that John informs us is ours to enjoy, then a requirement of this fellowship is for us to walk in His light rather than He walk in our darkness. Okay? So if you ever hear a teacher or even listen to a contemporary song talk about that, that's a lie. That's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Turn the radio dial. So on your study guide, I, I say that because I want you guys to be aware there's a blank. Okay? Probably, it'll probably drive people nuts if they listen to this on the... Anyway. So here's, here's your blanks. Where light abides, darkness cannot. And where darkness is present, there will be the absence of light. Where light abides, darkness cannot. And where darkness is present, there will be the absence of light. That's why those uh, verses there in 6 through 10, that's why if somebody claims that they're in fellowship with God, but yet they're walking in darkness, they're walking a lie. Because the two don't mix. The two don't mix. It is darkness sin. Sin the darkness. I'll talk about that when I get there. I know there's a lot of question about this. What is this darkness? Well, hang on. Just hang in there. I think that's part C or part D. Just hang in there. (laughs) Scientifically, darkness is just the absence. Absence of light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, the very first thing that the serpent did when he beguiled Eve was that he introduced darkness into the relationship between God and man. That's the first thing he did. In Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So on your study guide, the serpent introduced darkness into the relationship by his subtle defamation of God's character. That's what he was doing. He was slandering God's character. And introducing into Eve's mind this dark thought of the possibility that God cannot be trusted. That he may be holding out. That he's not forthright in his dealings with him. That he is uh, variable. The serpent slanderously suggested variableness in the unvariable. Say that fast five times. That's what he was doing. He suggested something impossible about God as though it were plausible. So here's your blank. Once a lie has been made plausible in one's mind, it is easy for more lies to be introduced. Once that door has been cracked open, then all sorts of things can come inside. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. See? The door has been opened. Here comes more lies. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What a clever lie this was. So on your study guide, first he negated negated judgment for disobedience, nullified consequences for sin, negated and nullified, and secondly promised enlightenment 
as a reward for this disobedience. And from such enlightenment, equality with God. Uh, enlightenment and equality. Equality. So he negated judgment, nullified consequences, promised enlightenment, and that you would be like God. Equality with God. See how that dynamic works? If there's no fear of the consequence of one's disobedience, and if one believes one will be better for this this disobedience, then why not disobey? Don't we see that all the time? Don't we do that all the time? Yeah. Yeah. This is prideful. This is declaring yourself as your own final authority, a place that only God has a right to. Yeah. So by his lie, the serpent effectually darkened the soul of man and blinded the mind of man to the light that God is. And that is the great tragedy of the fall. God, uh, man is now shut off from the light that God is. That light that was once in his soul is now blocked. It's gone. Something has overshadowed the light. And the enemy has been successfully playing off this, this same theme throughout human history. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, In whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believed not, least the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. He doesn't want you to have fellowship with God. He got kicked out of heaven. He wants you to get kicked out as well. And it's this darkness that's befuddled and plagued mankind ever since. But praise God, there came a day when God said, let there be light. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. John 1.5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So on your study guide... That God is light was even known prior to Jesus Christ being in light personified to earth. The Old Testament clearly acknowledges that God is light. And God came in the person of Jesus Christ, bringing light to the world. Psalms 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalms 36.9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. Psalms 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. And then one more, Isaiah 60, verses 19-20. through 20, The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended. We talked about that a little bit, uh, Dina. It, it, light will be, one day, light will be the norm. That'll be great. So on your study guide. The Old Testament acknowledges that the light, that the Lord is light, an everlasting light, a light of grace and goodness a light that gives more light to those that receive it a light that brings salvation and is a source of life a light that is truth Everlasting grace and goodness gives salvation truth. What is when the Old Testament clearly acknowledges? So the next blank. (laughs) Are we keeping up? Am I going too fast? So far, so good? Okay. So John in his gospel also speaks of the light. 
John in his gospel also speaks of, the, of his light. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the light was the light of men. John 1, 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 8, 12, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, that's where we want to be. We want to walk in His light, not in darkness. And then John twelve thirty five through 36 Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and hide himself from them. And I talked about that. He was talking about those folks who were wavering in their faith about who he was. So on your study guide, the Apostle Paul also teaches. Teaches is the word about the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God. I mean, honestly, praise God for that. Because one time we were all in darkness and then somebody told you about Jesus Christ and when you received Christ as your Savior, the light came on. I hope. Second, First uh, Timothy six fourteen, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So on your study guide, the Lord Jesus Christ is the, here's a big $10 word, embodiment of light. The incarnation of that light of which the Old Testament acknowledges about God. Embodiment. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3 God, who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Here it is, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the only one who can dwell in that light that God is. What do you think would happen to us if we tried to dwell in the light that God is? We, yeah. Yeah, it would be an Indiana Jones. What the old prophets, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament dispensations confess about God, it is true of Jesus Christ as well. He is the personification of God as light. And you're going to have your Gnostics, I mean even Bible-thumping Gnostics out there tell you differently. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. He is the light. He is the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. Why must we believe this about Jesus? Well, it's your next blank. Why do we need to believe this about Jesus Christ, that He is light personified? Jesus Christ is God's antidote to the darkness that has plagued mankind since the fall. He's the antidote, folks. He's the antidote. John 1.14 And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why in John's epistle, the denial of Jesus as the Christ, that light that is God manifested to men, here's another big dollar word, 
is such an, an egregious error. Oh, that. Egregious. E-G-R-E-G-I-O-U-S. That is the worst kind of error. Egregious. Egregious. You know why it's so egregious? Because it's depriving mankind of the antidote to their darkness. It's like seeing someone who's been poisoned and you've got the cure in your hand and you're hiding it in your pocket. That's egregious. 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus Christ Jesus is the Christ he is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And just because somebody stands up in the pulpit doesn't mean they're necessarily teaching you the truth. Those who teach otherwise are depriving mankind of his only cure for sin and mankind's only way back to God. When they're up there teaching you and preaching at you a gospel that's all about you filling your pockets with money, that's egregious. That's egregious. This is why Paul said of those who preach another gospel, let him be accursed. If they're not telling you the plain truth that only through Jesus Christ will you have salvation, that's egregious, folks. And John's teaching to to deny one is to deny the other. There's no difference between the two. As is the Father, so also the Son. 1 John 2.23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. See, that's what your JWs do. That's what your Jehovah Witnesses do. You know, they elevate the Father, but the Son is, you know, he's a little G God. That's egregious, folks. Mormons do the same thing. Muslims do the same thing. Yeah, they elevate Mary over over Christ. So as we had learned in our last lesson, we know that God has faithfully preserved His Word from generation to generation. He's proven Himself faithful in providing us His Word, which is the light that we have. Okay? So I want to talk about some aspects of God's as, as far as God is light. So on your study guide. So I guess that was kind of the introduction. <laughs> yeah. As I ranted and raved. So, number one. God is light is in reference to His splendor. His brilliant glory. And honestly, folks, when we're... Words fail us when it comes to this. It, it just does. Uh, that God is light runs counter to the amoral uh, Gnostic belief system, whether it's religious or secular. So on your study guide, in their evaluation of man as the enlightened one, the Gnostics demote and devalue God as the true source of enlightenment. In their evaluation of man as the enlightened one, the Gnostics demote and devalue God as the true source of enlightenment. Okay? Ecclesiastes 8, 16 through 17. Sometimes I wish I had that little thing up on the... Because of the time constraint, I'd love for you guys to turn to these verses and see for yourself. But Anyway, Ecclesiastes 8. I think I've got it written on your... Okay. Starting in verse 16, it says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, farther, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. If you begin if you begin by rejecting the true light that God is found in his word, the true source of uh, of truth, then if you are looking for light and if you are looking for truth, it will be a vain search. 
Because you've rejected the light in the first place. Right? So you're going off and you're groping in darkness looking for light. So on your study guide, it is man's reason that has been promoted to godlike status. Remember what the devil said to Eve? You shall be as gods. Small g. Small g. G, Yeah, small g, godlike. Yet by reason man cannot know God. He may only know about God intellectually, but he cannot know God relationally. Big difference. Big difference. A life-changing difference. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So on your study guide, man being lifted up by his pride believes that the light of his reason is all that man requires, and it is his reason that will prove to be his deliverer. His deliverer. This was the main point of the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment was an age that celebrated man's reason. Uh, It was an age that celebrated the power of, of man's reason in order to understand the universe. Um, in order to, to improve his condition. In order to fulfill his desire of, of pursuing knowledge and freedom and happiness. Okay, here we are like, what, 100, 200, 300 years? How well are we doing in all of that? They've got these fancy telescopes up in, up in space and they still can't figure things out as far as the universe is concerned. In fact, the more they dig, the more questions they have. And has the age of enlightenment brought around, brought about anything better for life? No, we're still warring and fighting among ourselves. There's still poverty. Yeah. But yet, man's reason is, is their deliverer. It was an age of ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. We still, we still tout that very same thing today. We do. We do. I'm going to step on people's toes. Our country is a proud country. Because our country brags about the very same thing. But look at the state of our country. You know why our country is in the state it's in? Because we are morally bankrupt. That's why. We've turned our back on the true source of truth. We've turned our back on the light of God's word. And we are suffering the consequences for it. The Psalm, turn to Psalms 49. I do want you to see this. This is a pretty lengthy passage. Psalms 49 declares the folly of this celebration of man's reason. The psalmists could see it. The psalmist could see it. Psalms 49 at verse 1. Hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. So who is he talking to? (laughs) Everybody. Both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? That They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. That he should, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. 
For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. The inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their saying, See law. It's all vain. It's all vanity of vanities. What is true in the secular realm is also true in the religious. Whether you're a liberal or a fundamental, whether you're evangelical or Catholic, I don't know if you guys have recognized this or not, but there seems to be a a textualistic mentality in the church today. They approach the Word of God with man's reason. And they judge God's Word based upon man's reason, man's scholarship. It's as if man has taken upon him the mantle of judge and jury, and he proclaims, this is the Word of God, and this is not the Word of God. Was that written by David? It might have been. There's a... um, a belief in religion, and I use religion in a broad sense because it's true across the board, um, that the human mind is sufficient. And even in some circles, the human mind is superior in its judgment of what is truth and what is not truth. Um, in fact, in some circles, there is really no need of new birth. And there's really no need of having the Holy Spirit of God dwell in, dwell in you for you to understand God's Word. Now, they may not come right out and say it, but it's there. The attitude is there. The attitude is there. Uh, at least the secular philosophers were honest enough to reject God's Word outright. But what these uh, theological rationalists, is what I call them, what they do is they'll pretend to accept God's Word, but at the same time, they'll reject God's Word. They kind of play this two-faced game. This two-faced game. Uh, When I was employed and worked for a living, I would carpool with some Bible college uh, students. And many of these folks were good folks. And I even liked some of them. But there were some of these individuals who would uh, pontificate about all the nuances of theology and use high-dollar words like pontificate. Okay? And whenever they would get into these discussions, there was always something missing. Always something missing in their conversations and their dissertations and in their bantering back and forth using all of this language. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it for a while. But then it, it dawned on me. With these folks, it was all intellectual. It was all intellectual. It was an exercise of the mind absent from God exercising the heart and the soul that's what it was it was a love for knowledge a love for knowledge I never once heard from these individuals any mention of fellowship with God any mention of that God was even alive he was talked about as though he was some sort of abstract concept you know There was no knowledge of them. I mean, they knew a lot, but I never really got from them that they knew God. It was a purely analytical approach to the Bible. It was more like the Bible was a textbook, a curiosity, something that that tickles the, uh, the intellect, 
In fact, uh, they treated the Word of God like a frog in a Petri dish, dissecting it, separating out its different parts. It reminded me of that verse in 2 Timothy 3, 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Be careful, beloved. Be careful. We are members of a Bible-rich church. Be careful. Don't let all the training, don't let all the education, don't let all the opportunities of, of getting more and more and more knowledge drive out of your heart love for God and love for people. Because if you're not careful, that's exactly what will happen. Yeah, you won't know it. You'll be like a, a frog in a boiling pot. You won't even know it. You'll get so puffed up in your head because of what you know, you forget God. You'll forget God. This is what happens to Bible-educated believers. I know pastors who are this way. When I first met these men, these men were lovers of God's Word, lovers of God's people. But then they went and got their degrees, and then something happened. Something happened. God was educated right out of their souls, right out of their hearts. Pursue after knowledge, but don't forget to pursue God at the same time. All right? Pursue after knowledge. Get to know the book, but don't forget the author of the book. And that's what happens with a lot of people. They fall into the intellectual snare of basing their relationship with God more on their reason. You know, God's got to convince me that He's worthy of my time. Or if I find something in there that I can't get an answer to, then it's God's fault or it's the Bible's fault. What happened? What kind of attitude is that? What kind of attitude is that? We can become so intent on apologetics, splitting dangling participles in Greek tenses to satisfy our, our, our cerebral curiosity that um, our personal relationship with God becomes neglected or almost non-existent. Now, I know some guys who know a lot about the Bible, but they are as cold as stone. Cold as stone. I recently uh, listened to a blog or a podcast or whatever you call those things. I don't know what you call those things. I don't listen to blogs. Okay. Now, blogs, is that that stuff that's floating? I read a blog. Okay, I didn't... Okay, I listened to a podcast. Thank you. So anyway, I listened to a couple of very bright young men, and they were talking about ministering to the bereaved in their church. And what I was really hoping for, I was hoping to gain some insight here. Okay. Well, what I heard was a clinical, analytical approach to these hurting people. It was almost like they were performing an an autopsy on these people. Uh, They were speaking, you know, of ministering, uh, you know, and so forth and so on. But it was so clinical, so clinical. You know what was missing? Compassion. Compassion. That's what was missing. Oh, it was mentioned offhand, like a like a tool in their little toolbox. Oh yeah, we got to remember to have compassion. No, that should be the main thing. It's very clinical. Romans 12:15 says rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. 
1 Corinthians 12.26 says, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. I do not want a cold clinical Christianity. God deliver me from something like that. And if you find me being a cold clinical Christian, slap me in the face, please. You'll be doing me a favor. At least I'll feel something. There are so many smart Christians out there that have no feelings. I don't want to be that way. So be careful in this Bible-rich church of ours. Don't let the heart for God be educated out of you. Okay? Because if that happens, then all of that knowledge, all of that training, all of that education is for naught. God is light, yes. God is righteous, yes. But God is also love. Now, I had the wonderful privilege of being friends with a man who had never gone to Bible college, never attended a Bible institute to my knowledge. But this man knew God. This man knew God. This man had such a love for God and a love for God's people and a love for people. That's why he was so loved. That's why he was so loved. This man rubbed shoulders with some of the greats, if you want to call it that. Some of the greats. And you know why these men who are really up there on that ladder, that ecclesiastical ladder, like to be in company with this friend of mine? Not because of his education. Not because he... uh, It was because of his love for God and love for people. I think they wanted some of him to rub off on them. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all I get and get understanding. I mean, what good, that's on your worksheet, what good does all that education and reasoning and Bible knowledge do for a person if they never come to know the splendor and brilliant glory displayed by the love of the Father who, through the love shown to us by Jesus Christ? What good does all that education and reasoning and Bible knowledge do for a person if they never come to know of the splendor and brilliant glory displayed by the love of the Father through the love shown to us by Jesus Christ? You're welcome. 1 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3 says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Wouldn't that be cool if... I'm not going to say on the day of your death, but wouldn't it be cool if somebody, if they were talking to you, about you to others, if they would say, you know what? So-and-so really loves God. Instead of, you know what? So-and-so really knows that Bible. So-and-so can really split those dangling participles, whatever a dangling participle is. I don't even think I want to know what a dangling participle is. Is there a prescription for it? Is there a prescription for it? Okay. Yeah, sometimes the cure is worse than the... So, anyway, so what is the best way to glorify God? Yep. You display His splendor when you love others. You display His glory when you love His Word. Not for the sake of filling your head full of stuff, but it's because through His Word you fall in love with Him. If you're not falling in love with God as you read through His Word, there's something going on, and you need to fix it. You need to fix it. How do you do that? Pray. Ask God for you to help help you in that matter. Believe me, you, you do. You gotta ask God to help. You can't do it on your own. You gotta ask God to help you. Okay, what time do I have? <laughs> Maybe. According to your worksheet, I'm almost done. According to my notes, I'm not. <laughs> so number two, God as light speaks of his majesty. Majesty. 
You know, here in America, we um, we have a different take on majesty. We're not like the Europeans, you know, talk about their kings and queens, you know, his majesty or her majesty. In fact, uh, our country has a pretty peculiar uh, attitude toward our leaders. You know, and many countries kind of look at it thinking it's kind of disrespectful and stuff like that. Uh, we as Americans, uh, we don't like to call our president his majesty even though he may want us to but we don't that's just not the way we are but as americans when we think of majesty what do we think of we think of america the beautiful don't we yeah we think of this country oh beautiful oh beautiful for spacious skies for amber waves of grain for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain america america god shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea we are proud of our country we are proud of our country uh and we we ought to be we ought to be proud of our country but tragically our our nation has shifted away from esteeming God as the majesty on high, like that uh, that song that I uh, talked about. Uh, we forget that he has shed his grace on us. That's why we are, or we were, the country that we were. That's why all these people want to come to us, because God's grace was on us, because we honored God, we esteemed God. We don't do that anymore. So on your study guide, when it comes to the Lord, the God of the Bible, the word majesty speaks of His power, His authority, His exalted station above all creation. First Chronicles 29.10 Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. Thou reignest over all in thy hand is power and might. And in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. That's a good attitude. That's the right perspective. And we've lost that. We've lost that. Psalms 29.4, uh, 29.3 through 4 says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You know, at one time when men would hear the clap of thunder... They would be in awe. And sometimes we'd even say, that's the voice of God. But we've gotten sophisticated, haven't we? We now know that that clap of thunder is nothing more than the air rushing into the vacuum created by lightning. So we have conveniently, scientifically pushed God aside. Because we're so smart. We've been able to reason God right out of nature. We as a nation have lost our awe of God. And in losing our awe of God, we no longer fear or reverence God or His Word. That's why we are in the state that we are in today. That's why we have the leadership that we have today. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So on your study guide, we are a people perishing. God's word is a moral standard that preserves a nation. Ensures a nation's prosperity. And assures the posterity of that nation for generations. We're not great because we're great. We're great because we had awe for a great God. And we've lost that. As a nation now, we tolerate and permit all sorts of wickedness and perversion as the norm in our society. And you speak out against that perversion, you speak out against that wickedness, and you're the weirdo. You're the one that's wrong. You're the one that's perverse. You're the one that should be ashamed. 
On your study guide, continuing with this theme of majesty, the psalmist even mentions that the Lord is clothed in majesty. Clothed in majesty. Psalms 93.1, the Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he, shall, he hath girded himself. The Lord also is established, that it cannot be moved. Now what does this clothing of majesty look like? Well, we don't need to look any further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus Christ was up on the mount? Matthew 17.1 says... And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine in the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Luke Luke 9.29, And as he prayed, the fashioning of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. You know what the word glistering is? Have you ever been out at night during a thunderstorm, and that brilliant flash of lightning just lights up? Think of that, but not going away. Okay? Not going away. Brighter than lightning. Brighter than lightning. What these three men caught a glimpse of was that was Jesus Christ clothed in majesty. Clothed in majesty. And John would see the Lord in glory again in Revelations. Running out of time, so let me get to these la- this last point. These last points. In lieu of God is light, here is the first principle of fellowship. If we fail to hold God in high esteem, in our hearts and in our minds, then our lives will reflect this failure by our choosing to walk in darkness rather than walking in His light. If you do not... Acknowledge that God is light and esteem Him for the light that He is, holy, pure. If you don't esteem God in that way, folks, then your fellowship will suffer. Your fellowship will suffer. Psalms 119, 127 through 130 says, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. If you don't hold his word in high esteem, your fellowship will suffer. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the two. If you don't hold the Lord Jesus Christ in high esteem, not only as your Savior, but as your Lord, your fellowship will suffer. So on your study guide, some questions. Will we choose to live carnal lives rather than lives of righteousness? Will we prefer the works of darkness rather than those of light? And then the last one, will we love self over others as well as over God? You know, what we all must on a very personal level is this. We have to avoid the plight of the Laodicean believers. We live in the, I believe we live in the last days of the Laodicean church age. And I have a lot of Laodicean traits. And I'm not alone. And we need to recognize that. And one of the Laodicean traits that we have to be careful is not holding God in high esteem treating him as though he's your cosmic Walmart or your buddy or somebody who's going to get in the darkness with you and say that's okay that's okay 
You have to answer these questions for yourself. Because there can be no fellowship with God who is light if we, as children of light, don't address these questions and be honest about them and want to walk in the light as He is in the light. So your last blank is, this is the way of the Laodicean age. Is it any wonder God desires to spew them out? We don't want to be Laodicean believers, folks. We want to be Philadelphian believers. We want to be Philadelphian believers. What is blank for that? Last one on page four. Here's the first principles of friendship. High esteem and reflect. Okay, so let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Any um, 